Well, it's been another big week with pandemic news. We've seen blue states start to lift their mask mandates, and that's been done amid a lot of controversy. Some people, of course, never liked the mask mandates in the first place, and other people are outraged that they're being lifted when we still have so many cases. What's really interesting is that Denmark this month decided to end all their COVID-19 restrictions, at least for now, and people are not upset about it. There doesn't seem to be nearly as much conflict or controversy there. So what can Americans learn from this? That's going to be one of the topics in store for today's episode of Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg opinion columnist, and this podcast grew out of a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. My guest today has a lot to say about what's going on this week. Not only is he in Denmark, but he's also studied political polarization during the pandemic, and he's also an expert in politically motivated misinformation campaigns and hostility in social media. His name is Michael Bang-Peterson. He's an evolutionary psychologist and political scientist at Aarhus University in Denmark, and he's written extensively about the pandemic, including a recent piece in the New York Times titled How the End of the Pandemic Might Tear Us Apart, as if we aren't pretty torn apart already here in the U.S. So I did want to hear a little bit about your background as an evolutionary psychologist and how you've applied that to political polarization and attitudes about the pandemic. Yes, so I, I am uh, I am a political scientist by by training, but doing my PhD and my postdoc and so on, I used evolutionary psychology and and I I consider myself an evolutionary psychologist. And one of the reasons why I became interested in polarization and things like misinformation is exactly because of my interest in evolutionary psychology. What, one of the key insights uh, from an evolutionary psychological perspective is that that we humans evolved to live in groups and we evolved to deal with conflicts using the groups that we are in. And, and by that, I mean that a lot of human conflict is really group-based conflict. So people sometimes use the word tribal. Is that a good way to characterize it? Yeah, that would be a way to characterize it, that we have these tribal instincts. But I think the tribe like that that term often is sort of I used to indicate that I as an individual feel belonging to uh, to a group and that my identity is very much a group identity and and all those things are true and that is especially the case in in conflict and and that is where my my interest in misinformation comes from because there's a lot of anthropological research that suggests that that one key way in which we sort of make use of our groups is that we try to mobilize them in context of, of conflict. And one of the ways in which we do that is by, by spreading rumors about how evil and how nasty this other group is. And, and some of the anthropologists, they uh, sort of go to or make the argument that essentially you don't have something like an ethnic riot or an ethnic massacre even without a preceding period of uh, rumor spread essentially a phase of where misinformation is circulated about the other group. And that is essentially crucial for mobilizing the group to commit the atrocities. 
This is starting to sound pretty familiar, especially for those of us who've spent some time on Twitter, where there do seem to be two pretty strongly warring factions. One is loosely related to the political left and is in favor of restrictions and actually wants more of them and probably would want some of them to be permanent. And then there's the other side associated with the political right that has opposed most of the restrictions, whether it was closing restaurants, limiting social occasions, social distancing rules, or mask mandates. That was the sort of framework that I had in mind that we as humans evolved to navigate in group conflicts. We evolved to share misinformation in the context of group conflict. That was the framework I had in mind when I began to to watch uh, what happened uh, during the 2016 presidential election on on social media, and and I thought this is this is exactly a context in which to study those psychological mechanisms. One thing that seems to have changed now we're in this pandemic situation and people are using the word misinformation in different ways, but it seems like it is politicized. What people call misinformation has a political component. And I wondered if you could address that because I think traditionally people imagine medical misinformation to be just sort of apolitical quackery, a doctor trying to sell something. But it does seem to me that there is a political component to what people are calling misinformation. But very much so. And, and I think it's it's very important to remember why it is that we are talking so much about the concept of fake news. And that is in part because President Trump used that term to cast negative light on the mainstream media in the United States. So in, in that sense, you could say that, that the concept of fake news was from the beginning a political tool. And, and it is a way to denigrate political opponents to characterize the information that they are sharing as, as misinformation. This next part sounds surprising at first, but it makes sense in the context of all this tribal warfare. What he found was that the people most likely to be creating and sending out a lot of misinformation are not the most ignorant people, but actually the most politically savvy. They're also the most passionate, or maybe to be a little less kind, they're the ones who are most motivated by hatred of the other side. And, and we can see that if we're looking at, at those who are sharing misinformation, then that's, that's also heavily predicted by political feelings. We have been looking at uh, the spread of uh, misinformation on Twitter, and perhaps surprisingly, we find that uh, the people who are doing the sharing of misinformation, they know more about politics than the average. They are just as uh, as sort of cognitively reflected as the average Twitter user. So, so they are not in any way ignorant, but they really, really don't like the political opponent or the other political party. So if we have a Republican who has this intense disliking of Democrats, that's the person you will be you will see be sharing a lot of misinformation. Oh, very interesting. And now one one thing that I've come across is that you know there's sort of clear-cut political misinformation where you make a claim about your opponent, you know, you say Hillary Clinton is involved in some sort of a 
sex trafficking ring, you know, so you can you can spread that as very clear cut. But with science, science is uncertain. So, you know, there are claims people make that viruses tend to become less deadly over time. And there are virologists that say, well, there in some aspects that can be true, but it's not a rule, nor is there a rule against it. It's an area of developing understanding. And yet people will point to the other side and say, no, that's in misinformation if you say it is or you say it isn't. Exactly. And I, and I think going back to, to the findings that we have, one of the very interesting things that we can see is that the people who are most motivated to share misinformation, like out, outright false information, are actually also the same people who are most likely to share true information. It's it's simply that these people are sharing a lot of information and and they are strategically selecting the information that they are sharing such that it fits their worldview and accomplishes or helps accomplish their specific political goals. And and they care less about whether it's true or false. They care about whether it's useful for denigrating their opponent. And because you see these sort of selective sharings of of also true information being, being motivated by the same feelings, that is sort of part of the problem that you can in fact also spread misinformation even if you're sharing true information because you will be using it to advance a particular agenda you will slightly distort what it is saying you will sort of downplay the uncertainty that is involved you will not take into account countervailing uh, evidence so the, the basic problem is not so much that we humans do not care about the truth. The basic problem is that we're simply biased towards information that fits our uh, our priors. And, and that also models the whole discussion about what is what is misinformation and, and what is not misinformation, as you are saying. Yes. Yeah. No, it's it's intriguing. Actually, one of the other researchers I met through that, that um, fake news conference was David Rand, and he talked about that's a very telling anecdote where he shared a piece of misinformation on Twitter because it was something that sounded true that a Republican politician was saying something stupid about climate change and he shared it. And then he, he realized later it wasn't true, but it just sort of was a juicy rumor that he thought, you know, oh my God, that's too good. That's too good. I have to share that. And then when he sort of stepped back and thought about it a minute, so it was more like people do think about the effect it'll have on their friends first, and then they think about whether it's true second. Yeah, exactly. And and we know it from everyday life that some sometimes we pass on a rumor where we don't really have any evidence for whether it's true or whether it's it's false, but we think it, it's interesting, it's fun, or something like that. And what we're forgetting is that if we do that in, in the context of an everyday conversation, then it's just our conversation partners that hear about that. So the, the damage is sort of limited. But on social media, we very quickly lose control over the information that we're sharing, and it, it can create these uh, cascades. So we really do need to pay attention to what what it is that we are sharing on, on social media, because it, it will spread much more widely than when we're just passing on an, an interesting rumor to, uh, to, to somebody in our offline lives. Before we talked, he pointed me to a preprint of some research that he had showing that people who are the most hateful and mean on Twitter aren't the dumbest. They're actually more knowledgeable than most of the nice people. And the meanest people are also the most influential and popular. 
And you had a very intriguing new paper or new preprint out suggesting that the people who are the meanest, most vicious, nastiest people on Twitter are actually more knowledgeable than the nice people. Yeah, uh, exactly. And and we, we would have expected, at least for, from some theories, that that wouldn't be the, the case, that, that the people who were most hateful, they would be sort of more marginalized groups. They would be people who maybe had a difficult time engaging in, in offline politics or regular politics, and therefore would go to Twitter and vent their frustrations. But But that is not at all what we're seeing. Rather, we're seeing that those people who are most hateful uh, in political discussions on, on Twitter are the more resourceful. So it's the more educated. It's those who are also engaged in politics out in the offline world. It's it's those who, who feel that they know how to uh, behave in politics uh, and so on. And and traditional political science would say that, no, these are the good citizens. It's it's those who contribute to, to democracy and, and so on. But but that's not at all what we're seeing here. Rather, we are seeing that those are the are the hateful. And really, what is worrisome about it is that we can see it's they are not just hateful, but they're also highly influential. These are the people who have most followers. It's the people who tweet most, people who have the most sort of privileged positions in the Twitter networks. So so we have these very hateful individuals who get a lot of visibility on Twitter. And I think that is perhaps not so much a reflection of what social media does to people and more reflection of current U.S. politics that in this day and age, being hostile in, in politics is, is essentially sort of normal political engagement. Interesting. I wondered if you'd looked at some of the people who are spreading a lot of what's being called misinformation on social media. One is Alex Berenson. He's been kicked off Twitter, but I think he has a Substack account. And it seems like what he shares is a mix of actual studies and data that back up his point of view and things that are a sort of a misinterpretation, as I would see it, of real data. Yeah, that, that is what we're seeing in, in our studies as well, that, that the people who are sharing uh, what you could call misinformation also sharing a lot of other other stuff and and really it's 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 not because that they are deliberately sharing false stuff it's simply that they are sharing whatever seems to fit into their worldview and the and the position that they want to advance and and in that process they care less about is this true or is it false like it's not the it's not the relevant dimension of evaluation and so how are things different in Denmark and the U.S.? Are, are people in Denmark as polarized and at each other's throats as Americans, or are people there a little more unified? Uh, so Denmark is is a different country when it comes to politics than United States. We we do have aspects of polarization. There there can be strong dislike across partisan boundaries here in Denmark as well. But but overall, there is a strong sense that we are in the same boat, so to speak. That our fates are intertwined and and therefore that we need to sort it out with each other and i think what what is currently happening in in us politics at, at least that is what it appears like from for an outsider like me is that there's less and less a sense of of being in it together 
less and less a sense of that the best outcome is if we can sort of sort it out find a a solution that works for all of us and i think that's the really dangerous part of polarization and that is where polarization and disagreement really becomes dangerous is if there's not this cooperative spirit underneath and there's been a lot of press here in the US with things that you've written and been quoted in about Denmark's move to lift restrictions how has that gone over it's been uh, controversial here people have very different views of it as you might have seen from the comment sections but how what, what is the view of it there people are uh, pretty happy about it and and it's not because people are opposed to restrictions here in Denmark people were in in favor of imposing the restrictions we had because it was deemed necessary in December where there was a lot of uncertainty about the impact of omicron then when we uh, got more data when we uh, rolled out booster vaccines then it it turned out that that given the milder nature of omicron together with very high coverage of sort of two doses of uh, of vaccines and and also booster vaccines so six, 61% of the entire population has a booster vaccine and 81% of the entire population uh, have two doses then it wasn't a threat to the same extent anymore so so it's not it doesn't reflect an opposition towards restrictions it reflects a sense that they are not needed right now I see. And so people are less likely to become fractured over these things, over the imposition of the restrictions and the lifting them. It it also sounds like they've come with a little better explanation whereas here in the US we often get restrictions with no explanation, lifting with no explanation. And so I think that leaves people distrustful. At, at least we can see in, in in our data that we have been collecting throughout the pandemic. So I'm directing this large research project on pandemic behavior, and and there we can see that people feel a clear majority of the population feel that they are getting clear information from the authorities, and and we can see that the public's assessment of the severity of the situation is pretty closely following the the authorities' uh, assessment uh, as well. So so in that sense, there is much less polarization over the whole management of the pandemic here in Denmark than there is uh, elsewhere and and that has something to do with with communication but it also has something to to do with very very high trust in the health authorities so uh, whenever we have surveyed this and we have done that since the beginning of of the pandemic sometimes daily there we have seen that over 90% of the population say that they have uh, trust or the adult population say that they have trust in the health authorities in this next part he talks about the way danish people tend to think and feel about the pandemic they don't think much in terms of personal safety or in terms of their own fears but they think about society and the societal threat of course we americans do too but in a pretty different way one faction thinks we all owe it to society to do everything possible to avoid the spread of the virus no matter how extreme the other side thinks that we owe it to society's psychological and economic well-being to rein in the first side the danes seem a lot more sensible and moderate the whole if we look at how it is that that the danish public think about coronavirus then they don't think of it as an individual threat so that they don't think of it as a threat to them or to their kids 
they think of it as a societal threat. This is something that can overwhelm hospitals if we let it go under other circumstances than those circumstances that we're facing right now. But I think this focus on the societal threat rather than the individual threat have made a lot of difference in society's ability to build consensus because we don't have these discussions about whether it's dangerous for children to go into schools. When people are uh, complying with restrictions, they don't do it out of a personal fear. They do it out of solidarity with the rest of society. And, And that also means that they much more easily can move back or move out of crisis mode, because it's it's not based on an individual fear, but it's based on societal responsibility. And when the health authorities then say, now there's no longer a societal threat, then they're sort of ready to go back to their everyday life and say, okay, that's it. Now I don't need to comply with all these uh, different restrictions because there is no threat. Whereas if you are sort of very focused on your individual health, then it will be more difficult to transition out of the crisis mode. So I think the the focus on the societal threat has has both made it easier for people to transition out of crisis mode and also have meant that that we don't have the same discussions about masking kits in in schools and and so on. My final question to him is about something that he said on Twitter that really resonated with me 2 years into the pandemic and it's that pandemic fatigue doesn't apply to restrictions that are meaningful. I think that's very perceptive because we're not so much fatigued as we are doubtful that much of what we're doing or being asked to do is really helping. So I want to make sure you address something uh, something I pulled off of something you said on Twitter that fatigue doesn't apply to restrictions that are meaningful. Yeah, so what what I meant by that and I, I could, first I should probably talk about the data point that is sort of underneath that. And that is that we are finding in the data that we have on pandemic fatigue that, of course, when you impose restrictions on a population, then fatigue begins to build, especially over time. But what is very interesting is that when you have many people dying from the epidemic, and of course, that's a terrible thing, but nonetheless, it it has this interesting effect that then people become less fatigued. So a lockdown is feels less burdenful when when the pandemic is severe and the way that i interpret that is that we we humans are strange animals like we can cope with a lot of suffering if we see a meaning to that suffering if we can sort of see that these restrictions are dealing with the significant problems in terms of a high death toll then we don't get as fatigued as we would if if we don't see that problem so, so therefore, it is really crucial to, to try to build support for the pandemic management or the pandemic strategy that you have, such that people can see the meaning and feel that it's needed what they're doing and the sacrifices that they're making. I think that is so wise because I, I feel that myself. And I think that's something that people around me feel that when it feels like the restrictions are arbitrary or they're put in place to make the politicians look like they're doing something, then it's beyond fatigue. It's just annoyance because we don't really think, we think what we're doing might be just symbolic or even counterproductive. Uh, exactly. And and that's a, a reason why we need precise high fidelity data that can 
allow us to reach more informed uh, choices in in real time about those kinds of things like where is it that we should impose restrictions where can we relax them what kinds of mistakes did we do in the last wave and so on yeah yeah because i think that's what makes it meaningful if you think well so many people died because of uh lack of mask wearing in the supermarket then people would wear a mask but if they don't see that then it starts to feel sort of perfunctory you know okay we got to do this but does it really matter you know and that's certainly the case with wearing a mask to your table in a restaurant that it, it feels very very perfunctory you sort of think well should people who are at high risk go to restaurants right now or should we have a better advisory in place to make sure that high risk people don't go to restaurants at all rather than making everybody wear a mask for 5% of the time they're in there exactly and it is it is this uh, silly thing where you say well does does the virus stop infecting you when you when you sit down it would not think you would not think that i think it originally came from the obsession with six feet which kind of went away with um, our understanding of the airborne transmission inside so the idea was i guess you would get within six feet of other people on the way in Well, maybe it's just something about America's history and our diversity that makes it so easy for us to split into factions that end up feeling so hostile toward each other. But I think we can still learn from Denmark's middle ground. They have a huge number of cases, and during this Omicron surge, they're not seeing an overwhelming number of people sick enough to take up ICU beds, and they aren't seeing a big surge in deaths. Some of that is because their vaccination rate is higher than ours. And they seem to be able to agree to a pretty big extent on a middle ground with restrictions. They have restrictions and they obey them when their hospitals are in danger and then they're willing to relax those restrictions when the situation changes. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam. You can follow Faye on Twitter at Faye Flam. That is F-A-Y-E-F-L-A-M. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman, with music by Kyle Imperator. If you liked today's episode, we'd really love it if you left us a positive rating and review wherever you listened. Thanks in advance, and we'll see you next week.